You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It is, as I've mentioned, December 31st, and that means it's, well, it's the end of the year, and I say the exact same thing, I think, just about every single December 31st. I can't believe it's here. How much time has passed? Time is one of those things that, depending on where you are or what you are experiencing, can sort of fly by if you are on vacation and you're enjoying where you are. Time really seems to run by in a hurry. Or if you are at the Department of Motor Vehicles, let's just say, you're in line at Walmart on New Year's Eve. Time has a tendency to grind to a moving halt. Every single one of us experiences time. Now, that great Old Testament sage, Solomon, had some interesting insights on this. Solomon, of course, being the second wisest man in the world. The first, of course, being our senior pastor who loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. But number two is Solomon. And this was Solomon's insight on the concept, the notion of time. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Solomon writes this, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent. Yes, I have a chance. Nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Every single one of us experiences time. We all experience the passage of time. So another year has come and gone. We're on the brink of another. How are we supposed to pass the time? We as the church live in an interesting age of the already and not yet. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Our Messiah has come. Believers are permanently indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. He could literally not be closer to the believer than he is in this age. And yet, and yet, we still struggle. We still experience pain and sorrow and suffering and grief and loss. If that's true, and it is, then how does God intend for us to feel about our experience of the passage of time in this age. And so I thought as we close out 2017 and we begin 2018, it'd be an appropriate time to help us to think rightly about time. When we think rightly about God, that is when we think theologically, it instructs, it informs our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives, and our Bibles are helpful. Our Bibles read us as much as we read them, and they're instructive at helping us sort of navigate through the tension of Yeah, but really, I love to go to church. But then there's Monday, and then there's Thursday, and then there's even Saturday night. How do we pass the time in between? Well, this morning I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is a great psalm to answer, I think, some very foundational and fundamental human questions. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God has done. And it tells us who we are. As I've already said, God speaks to us in the present tense. And what I want to leave us with this morning from Psalm 126, our big idea, if you will, 
is simply this, very succinctly, very briefly, God still does what God has done. For some of us, that maybe is the most comforting thing we can hear, that God still does what God has done. So I'm going to read Psalm 126, and then we'll see if we can unpack this a little bit. Psalm 126, the superscript says, A Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O oh Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126, it's only six verses, but I think it's very powerful. I think it's very pertinent. Now, I want to set a little bit of a background, a little bit of a context for Psalm 126. It is one of the Psalms of Ascent, 15 Psalms of Ascent that the Levites and the priests would recite as they ascended Temple Mount, the 15 steps. But not only that, the people themselves, the households, the clans, the family groups, as they approached Jerusalem for these three festivals a year, as they approached and drew near, they would rise in elevation. And they would recite these psalms of ascent together, sort of a, a creedal catechism, so that their families would remember the faithfulness of God. These festivals happened three times a year, but then life sort of happened between these festivals. How had they been waiting? What was life like between these festivals? What was it like to simply wait? I have a good friend who lived in New York City for a while, and he said that it was well-known sort of one of the expressions that they would have in New York was, life is what happens while you're waiting for a table seems in New York, you're always waiting for a table to get sat to have a meal someplace. And I feel that way sometimes. But for me, I think life is often what happens when I'm waiting for a Sunday. But for the Christian, normatively, life is what happens while we wait for the return of our king. So how do we make sense of the time? How can we live confidently with joy? It's interesting how many times that term joy is repeated in this brief psalm. We have a God our Father, who exists both in time and out of time, but not us. We go through life experiencing what we call the succession of moments. Time passes. It's a part of the human experience, part of what makes us who we are. And the things that happen to us in our past do inform our present, and they prepare us, hopefully, for the future. The book of Proverbs says that the wise person considers these things, but the fool does not. And so God has given us his word in abundance to provide us abundant truth so that we do not merely default to doing life in the liminal spaces, the moments of life while we wait, so that we don't just do it according to our own common sense. That's not wisdom. So that we do life together in community. G.I. Joe that great theologian, was right when he said, knowing is half the battle. So this morning we want to look at this psalm in a little bit more detail to see if we can know a little bit more. This psalm is so wonderfully organized, it gives us sort of a, a timescape, if you will. It talks about the past, 
it talks about the present, and it talks about the future. So let's unpack this a little bit. Psalm 126, verse 1. When Yahweh... Yahweh is the restoring God. When Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, He is the only one that can restore our lives. All of our best efforts, all of our clever conjurings, can't restore a single human soul. God is the restorer of lives. And not only that, but this is so encouraging, such good news. God, as the psalmist reads this, does not merely restore them and leave them at the gate. He replenishes fortune. Now, the psalm doesn't tell us explicitly, but it's most likely that this psalm is referencing the return of the exile from Babylon in some 538 B.C. It doesn't have to be. It could be another time. But the psalmist is recounting the misery, the anguish, the agony that they experienced while waiting to return home and confessing that God is the God who restores. It's not their own ingenuity, not their cleverness, not their strength. It is God that restores. It is God that restores. No other nation in human history from exile to be reformed as a nation. But Israel does it twice. They spend centuries in Egypt and God brings them out and restores them. They spend decades in Babylon and God brings them out and he restores them. Because they deserved it? No, hardly. They were the least, the last, the lost, the lowest. And yet God finds favor with them. He restores their fortunes. This is our God's grace. He is good. Or as my oldest son used to say, he's, he's, he's so much gooder than I thought. When he was about four years old, we set him down in front of a big bowl of bluebell vanilla ice cream. And his face beamed. And he said, and I quote, I bet this ice cream is even better than I think it is. That rocked my world. I thought that, in childlike innocence, is how I ought to think about my God. This is how God restores. Such a profound statement combating and contrasting the secular humanism of our day that says, we can do this, we can fix this. See, the psalmist points out that it is the nations that are recognizing that God has done this. It could be argued that this is referring to a different period in Israel's history, but it's really not the point. It seems to me that it's best to take it that this is referring to that return from exile and the waiting, the waiting, the waiting that they experience. Verse 2 goes on to say that it was like a dream at the end of verse 1. It was like a dream, a surreal experience of joy. I don't know if you've ever had that surreal sensation that whatever you're experiencing was actually dreamlike or maybe even better than a dream. I remember a number of years ago, my father-in-law insisted that I read a book by Colonel Bud Gray called Return with Honor, in which he describes his captivity in a POW camp in Vietnam. And all of the anguish, the hardship, the torment, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt, the grief, the loss that they experienced. But finally, when they were released, when those who had survived, when they were released, he said, it was like a dream. We couldn't believe that we were finally free of the shackles of our oppressors. And I remember reading that thinking, 
gosh, I can't really understand that. And yet at the same time being convicted that I should. Because I have been saved from so much more. A slave to my own sin nature, to my own depravity, to my own default tendency to act outside the character of Christ. And yet I have been brought near, indwelled by his spirit, called son, called friend. Perhaps the psalmist is helping us to understand that in the present, as we look back, we are to, to recognize and to realize and to appreciate and to appropriate that we are living as if in a dream. We have been set free. He has made us alive. These dead things he has caused to walk again. There is joy. Then our mouth, verse 2, was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This joy was repeated over and over again, and I want to talk about this. This condition, it is not determined by circumstance. Many of us are waiting to feel good based on what's happening around us, but that's not joy. Joy is a pre-existing reality, an inward reality and a recognition that leads to an outward expression. One of my heroes in the faith, who's now with the Lord, Dallas Willard, put it this way. He said, full joy is our first line of defense against weakness, failure, and disease of mind and body. And that's convicting. Am I characterized by joy? I mentioned I get to serve in the downtown context, and so I have a lot of friends who are ministers, pastors, clergy at other congregations, other churches in the downtown area. And every now and then we'll have coffee, and I'll ask them, what do you guys think about Bethel? What do you guys think about our people, the membership, the congregation of Bethel Bible Church. And it's funny to sort of sometimes hear their descriptions and their assumptions. Very rarely do I hear them say, oh, the people of Bethel, man, they're just beaming with joy. Now, they may know a few of us that are like that, but what if we were characterized that way? Often what I'm told is, oh, yeah, Bible Church people, all you guys do is you study Hebrew, you're sort of the frozen chosen. I say, no, 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 it's not like that. Come and spend some time with us. I do see pockets of joy breaking out in the midst of struggle and hardship. And I believe this psalm is speaking to that. James Montgomery Boyce says that there are four kinds of joy that we as Christians have a tendency to lose while we wait in this life. Four kinds of joy that we have a tendency to lose if we're not cautious, if we're not vigilant. Number one is the joy of our salvation. This is what David prays for. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Do you remember? Has it been so long? Do you remember what it was like to realize? I have been brought near to God. I have right standing with God. By no merit of my own. I didn't earn, accomplish, or achieve any of this. He has given me right standing. There will never be a time in the rest of my eternal existence where I am not his and he is not mine. Do you remember that joy? We have a tendency to wane. Our awe leaks. Number two, he says that we have a tendency to lose the joy of spiritual victory. We have a tendency to get beat down, sort of pummeled into complacency. Life has a way of nudging us this way or that. None of us are as bad as we could be. None of us are as good as we should be. Life sort of forces us into the middle. And we've lost sort of the zeal and the zing and the zest of allowing the Spirit of God to lead us, guide us, fill us. 
into victory day by day and to celebrate that with one another. When was the last time you gave somebody a high five for a spiritual victory? Well, friend, that's too long. The third kind of joy that we lose is the joy of Christian fellowship. We start to adopt a spirit of tolerance for one another. Rather than looking at one another saying, these are people that I will never not know for all eternity. And as I sing songs with you, as we unpack God's word together, these are people that I will share eternity with. There is joy there. These are other people who have been brought into the new covenant community of the Spirit. The fourth kind of joy that we have a tendency to lose is a joy of a new work for God. When was the last time we got charged up and thought, that's the next hill that the Lord my God is leading me to climb. That's the next big project, the next dream I have, that if he doesn't come through, I'm lost. I'm so thankful and so grateful that we have at Bethel such a culture of missions and outreach. And Jeff Bice, our missions pastor, leads that committee. A lot of you are on that committee. And there's always this nudge, this push. What's the next thing we're going to do? As the Spirit leads, as the Spirit loves, what's the next thing we're going to do? And there's joy in pursuing those things. But we have a tendency to lose them. These joys must be a present reality. And they are all offered presently. And the joy of this redeemed life, it led the pagan nations during the time of this psalmist's writing to praise the God of Israel, the nations, the goyim, those who were not of Israel, looked and said, there's no way that happens by anything other than their God. You could say, well, if this is from the post-exile return to Israel in 538 B.C., there are those who would say, well, yeah, the then King Cyrus, he issued a decree and brought them back, but all of the nations realized, no, that had to be from their God because the King Cyrus of Persia, he even financed the return. The nations praised God. This is what Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus speaking to Israel, a group of unregenerate Jews who were hearing his ethic, his philosophy of his kingdom. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It was always God's plan with his people that they would make him known that we would have joy even in these liminal spaces of waiting for the next big thing. That we would be characterized by joy. Well, in verse 3, there's going to be a confession of the past in the present. He says, The Lord, Yahweh, has done great things for us. We are glad. He has done great things. We are glad. See, because God still does what God has done. We're about to move from the past in this psalm to the present. The psalmist agrees with what the nations are saying. And see, sometimes we need to preach a sermon to our own soul. Hey, soul, remember? God has done great things. God did not merely rescue me from sin and death and say, Great job. See you in heaven, tiger. No. God still does what God has done. He still desires to infuse and instill joy by his presence. Well, verse 4, we move to the present tense. This passionate plea for prosperity. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Time is shifted, and they find themselves in the present tense. 
The psalmist is going to boldly ask for blessing and prosperity, hearkening back to what God has done before, claiming God's faithfulness, asking for prosperity in the present. Remember, God is not some cranky, old, tired, distant deity. He is a father. And as my two sons approach me and say, Dad, I know it's this and I know it's that, but, but can we please? My heart and affection for them is stirred. God is a good, good father, in no way tainted by sin like this father is. Restore with prosperity and blessing. He does good theology here, the psalmist does. He asks now, based on what God has done in the past. And the request is for this sudden bursting forth of blessing. He references the Negev, the, the Judean desert south of Israel, where it only rains maybe once or twice a year. But when it does, there are flash floods of water ripping through the dryness and surprising. This is the sort of blessing of, of bounty that the psalmist asks for. And so much of our conservative evangelicalism is cautious to ask for blessing, cautious to ask for prosperity, because we don't want to be accused of being prosperity gospel people or preachers like what we see on TV. But that's a shame. That's too bad. Because the psalmist gives us the model that we are to ask for blessing because our God stands ready. And by His Spirit, He gives us the wisdom to know what to request. The Psalms make it plain that we are created to be a dependent people who feel need and who need to cry out and ask God, our good Father, for blessing. Well, and in verses 5 and 6, we move into the future tense. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I love these mixed metaphors. Then verse 6 he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalmist asks for these sudden waters and dryness, and then the next image switches to an agricultural idea. And this is how it is in the human experience. It's sort of an agricultural idea. We, we experience the passage of time. We experience life in the midst of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And God does restore fortunes, and sometimes it happens in ways that we don't expect. Sometimes it is sudden, and it bursts forth. But then there is also this picture of our working and our doing while we wait. Is it us working for our restoration? Absolutely, may it never be. It is working diligently in this life while we wait, because we have been restored. And it's not going to be easy. In fact, it will most often be difficult and it will be challenging. This is the life that we experience. It will characterize the passage of our time and experience on earth until Christ returns. But what we do matters. As Paul writes to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, he writes this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And the psalmist is saying, while we wait, there is pain. We ask for plenty, but there is also suffering. He's remembering that there are still yet others who are to be freed and who are to be restored. He's looking ahead to the efforts that will be required to bring them into the fold of the family of God. His confession is like ours as we approach 2018, that life will include pain. 
It will include suffering. Life will be painful. Sorrow, tears, and loss. But there is also joy. It is worth it. There will be bounty. We will get to experience disappointment and inconvenience, even sickness and death, some of us. But God uses that for His reaching of others. And so we are to be aware. So how are we to use this little six-verse psalm to inform and instruct our thinking today? I just want to remind us that God still does what God has done. We all have a tendency to drift into the mentality of, yeah, okay, but really, I've got a life to live in the meantime. But that is error. That is folly. During these succeeding moments that we experience, these passages of time, we are meant to experience tears and to go through a wide range of feelings. And so, just by a way of quick application, let me just offer some truths to prepare us for the upcoming 2018 and the time that we will pass should the Lord tarry. Number one, we will have tears. As I thought and prayed and prepared about coming to the South Campus here on December 31st, I know that many of you are aware of a lot of hurt and suffering that disease has caused. And it grieves a pastor's heart to see the people that we love and lead and guide and guard grieving. But we are to expect tears. We're more than likely, unless the Lord intervenes, which He can, more than likely going to experience tears early in 2018. We're to expect that and to plan accordingly. There was once a perfect human heart, Jesus, and He cried. He wept a great deal. Not only is He Messiah, He's also our model. A man indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, completely dependent and devoted to God's Holy Spirit. He was a man of sorrows. And He allowed Himself to deeply enter into the pathos and the pain of other people. I'm so glad He did. One of the most encouraging verses, I think, in the Gospels is simply John 11.35. Some of you, this is the one Scripture verse that you have memorized. Jesus wept viscerally, deeply, at the soul marrow level. He wept. One day, He will wipe away every tear. But in the meantime, while we wait, we will have tears. And when the tears come, we have to have already decided how we will respond. Again, as Dallas Willard says, it is impossible to master feelings by willpower in the moment of choice. We have to have decided in advance how we will respond to the tears that are inevitably coming in 2018. So three things that we can do with tears. Number one, we are to expect tears. They will come. They will arrive. To quote that other great theologian from the movie Princess Bride, the pirate Wesley, life is pain. Anybody that tells you otherwise is selling something. In this life, we will have trouble. The tears will come. So we expect tears. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when, when sadness comes. Be ready. Number two, invest tears. I had a pastor in Houston that would tell me over and over again as I was going through significant hardship, don't waste the pain. It's interesting that God has designed us. Tears are water. They cause growth. Recognize that God is using the tears that we cry 
to forge us. Expect the tears. Invest those tears. And then thirdly, pray those tears. Pray them back to God. He knows. He is sovereign. He can handle it. He's a good, patient father. <laughs> a friend very recently told me that his son, son named Beckett, says he prays to Jesus like they're on the phone together. <laughs> oh man, that is so convicting. When I'm in sorrow, is my tendency to gripe and complain about it to anybody who will listen, including the traffic on Broadway or the checker at Walmart? Or do I pray my pain back to the one who can handle it? Expect tears. Invest tears. Pray tears. Second application. We will experience deep feelings. That's okay. So many of us have tried to, to enter into this Christian life that has got no feelings whatsoever. That is not real. There was once a perfect human heart, Jesus. And he experienced feelings deeply. Yes, we Christians are supposed to feel intensely, and that's okay. But again, there are ways to deal with our feelings. There are those who are the legalistic religiosity group that say that, no, we are to adopt a mindset of stoicism. To keep stoic and to, to earn our way by simply trying our best. Fake it until we make it. It's an ancient heresy. We don't want to be characterized by that. It's built on human pride that says we can earn or achieve or we can do this, but we can't. The other way to address feelings is from secular humanism that says feelings are the best. To be Epicurean. If it feels good, do it. Feelings are the most important things in our lives, says secular humanism. By the way, every human civilization ever Every society ever starts conservative and drifts Epicurean. They all do. We start stoic, we start moral, and we slide into relativism and Epicureanism. We all do it. But the gospel comes along and says, take your feelings to the throne of God's grace. This little psalm is here to remind us that God can handle our praying with ferocity and honesty. We have a lot of decisions to make on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if we're not careful, we will end up defaulting and deciding by feeling rather than a sanctified and theologically informed will. That is a disaster. We will feel intensely. But again, quoting from Dallas Willard, feelings are good servants, but they are disastrous masters. I'd expect this as we usher in 2018. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. Jesus is alive. Maybe for some of us, that's all we need to have is our refrain as we enter into 2018. Wait a minute. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he offers to us in the present tense because of what he has done in the past, his indestructible life forever. And this is very good news. God still does what God has done. Psalm 126 is a great charge and a great reminder for us as believers to see the world around us as it could be and through God's eyes, not merely as it is. That's the vision, that's perspective, that's wisdom, and that's faith. And so, as I've thought about what would I pray for the people of Bethel Bible Church in all three campuses for 2018, I was led to Psalm 126. May we be a people who dream. He says when we came out of those hard places, we were like those who dreamed. 
What if in 2018, the people of Bethel Bible Church were like those who dream, who remember the exhilarating release of captivity? Not from tax law, not from this, that, either, but from our own sin nature, our own depravity, our own destiny of death. May we be like those who dream, who envision the harvest of souls being brought to life by a gracious God. May we be like those who dream, who pray fervently, who grow communities, who build leaders, who live generously. May we be like those who dream. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are for what you have done, for who you have declared us to be. Father, we confess that left to our own devices, we are powerless to save. We are powerless to do anything good apart from your Spirit. And so, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who has come into church, come into this place, maybe not even knowing why they're here, that you would move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they would step out of darkness into light, out of death into life, that they would believe that Jesus is who He says He was. He did what He said He would do, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, maybe against all understanding or even agreement with all that they have heard, but that they would believe. Father, for the rest of us who have known you for a very long time, but have gotten caught in the liminal spaces of waiting and the yeah, but really. Would you move by your Spirit and lead us to joy? May we be like those who dream. Father, we love you because you first loved us. I pray, God, for the leadership of this church that you will continue to give us wisdom and courage to love and lead and guide and guard and that this will be a year. Father, that we look back and say, Oh, what Yahweh has done to restore our fortunes. May it be exactly as I have prayed, or even better, because you are good and we can trust you. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen.